Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. On today's program, James Collins teaches about the life of the farmer turned prophet, and Pastor Larry answers some Bible questions. Your prayers and financial support are greatly appreciated. During these hot summer months, giving is slow. While folks are traveling and enjoying time with their families, we are here continuing to proclaim that God is still on the throne and prayer changes things. Please consider giving a financial gift today to help get us through these summer months. Call 1-800-652-1144. You can also give online, swrc.com. Staff evangelist James Collins comes now to teach about the life of the farmer turned prophet, Amos, in a day when God no longer spoke. If the Lord tarries, I have a new book that will be released this October titled The Twelve. The book is about the minor prophets of the Old Testament. The minor prophets were my kind of preachers. They were old-fashioned, Holy Ghost, leather-lunged, pound-on-the-pulpit preachers. They preached God's Word, and they didn't care who they offended. The minor prophets have some of the most relevant and contemporary messages that you will find anywhere in the Bible. Our world today needs to hear the messages of these men. The minor prophets could stand in any pulpit, they could stand before any crowd in America today, and their message would be up to date. Their message would be life transforming. Their message would be the voice of God speaking to us right now. As I've been working on the 12, I've been giving you little sneak peeks into the book here on the Watchman on the Wall program. Today I want to talk about the prophet Amos. If you have your Bible and like to follow along with me, I'll be in Amos chapter 8. I only want to look at two verses today, Amos 8, 11 and 12. There the Bible says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. Have you ever had someone give you the silent treatment? Now, I'm sure none of you are like this, but I know people who, if you ever make them mad or if they somehow get cross with you, they won't speak to you. You can say good morning or hello or how's it going, and they won't answer you. They will not even acknowledge you. Oh, they may talk about you behind your back to anyone that will listen, but they won't talk to you. They give you the silent treatment. You know, it's bad enough when people give you the silent treatment, but I want to speak to you today about the silence of God. Now, the passage of Scripture that I read is really the heart of the book of Amos. Let me give you a little background on this prophet. Amos wasn't a traditional prophet. Amos says that about himself in chapter 7. In Amos 7 and verse 14, the Bible says, Then answered Amos and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said unto me, Go, prophesy unto my people Israel. 
Amos didn't have the credentials of a traditional prophet. He never went to school. His family members were not prophets. The Bible says he was a sheep herder and he was a tender of sycamore trees. Now, the sycamore tree that Amos tended are not the same kind of sycamore trees that we have in America today. The sycamore trees in the Near East are a fruit-bearing sycamore tree. The fruit that they bear looks something like a fig. But the only way the fruit is tasty, the only way the fruit is edible, is when the person who tends the sycamore tree would pinch the fruit and bruise it. When the harvest time came, the pinched and bruised fruit tasted good. So before God called Amos to be a prophet, his life was filled with exciting days of cleaning up after sheep and going through the sycamore grove, pinching and bruising fruit. Now, I like this guy, Amos. He was a country boy, a farmer, if you will, that God called to the ministry. I can really identify with him. Like Amos, I'm just a country boy. I'm not the most educated man. I didn't go to the best schools. I don't come from a line of preachers. I don't have the credentials that many other Bible teachers have. I'm just a country boy from Oklahoma, so I really identify with Amos. Amos lived down south in Judah, and after King Solomon died, there was a civil war. The nation divided in half. The northern kingdom was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. The northern kingdom had as its center of worship a place called Bethel. There was a great church or cathedral, so to speak, built there in Bethel. It was the national church because the king worshiped there. Now, in the southern kingdom of Judah, the center of worship was Jerusalem. The Bible tells us that Amos was out tending his sheep one day, and God took him. The Bible says in Amos 7:15, And the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said unto me, Go prophesy unto my people Israel. Amos was out minding his own business, and God took him. God didn't tell him to go preach to the nation of Judah where he lived. No, God said, I want you to go up to the northern kingdom. I want you to go up to Bethel, and I want you to stand there in the king's church. God said, I have a message that I want you to declare. Today, I want you to know that the voice of God is powerful. In the book of Psalms, David described the voice of God as being so powerful that it sounded like thunder and it flashed like lightning. He said the voice of God shattered cedar trees and it shocked and caused deers to give birth. The voice of God is powerful, but more deafening than the voice of God is the silence of God. Amos speaks of a day when God hushed. He speaks of a time when God no longer spoke. He speaks of a day when God became silent. And as we study the book of Amos, there are three points that we really need to pay attention to. First of all, I want you to see that Amos speaks of a strange starvation. There's a strange starvation found in Amos chapter 8 at verse 11. There the Bible says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Now, these people knew about starvation. They knew about famines. They had been through many. 
They knew what it was like when there was a drought. They knew what it was like to have one crop after another fail and die. They knew what it was like when people starved to death. But God says here that he's going to send a different kind of famine. God says that he is not sending a famine where you hunger for bread or you thirst for water. God is sending a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Remember, Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. For us to grow spiritually, we have to feast on the words of the Bible. If we don't eat the meat of the word, if we don't drink the milk of the word, then we won't be strong in our spirits. In the book of Amos, God says that he sent prophet after prophet. He sent messenger after messenger, but nobody listened to him. So God sends Amos to the people with this message. God says, if you don't want to hear what I've got to say, then I'm going to quit talking to you. There is a famine coming. Now, the prophet Amos is an encouragement to me because he shows me the kind of person that God uses. Again, Amos was just an ordinary man. He had an ordinary job. He came from an ordinary family. But God told him to go up to Bethel to this beautiful prestigious, monumental church and preach the Word. Today, we would call Amos a southern backwater preacher. I imagine that he ate fried chicken and grits, hominy and cornbread, and probably drank buttermilk. Amos probably walked around with a glass of sweet tea in his hand. He was the kind of person that would say, y'all and ain't. Instead of saying tomato, Amos would have said, y'all ever had a mater sandwich? Amos was a country preacher at best. And at first, the people like him. They like him because he speaks of the sins of all the surrounding nations. Don't we all like to hear somebody preach when they're preaching about somebody else's sins? And we say amen to that. But then Amos started talking about their sins. Suddenly, the amen stopped and the people were squirming in the pews. Amos stood up in the northern kingdom of Israel and said, You are prosperous. You have money, but you become greedy. Instead of using your money to help the poor, you're using the poor to make more money for yourselves. You are idol worshipers. Money has become your God. And Amos says, If you don't get right with God, God is going to send a famine. He's going to send judgment. He's going to send silence. Now, nobody wanted to hear a simple preacher like Amos back then, and nobody wants to hear anyone like that today. We're too sophisticated to hear a plain word from God. We want someone to tell us in a soft voice that life is going to be rosy. We want someone to preach prosperity to us. Amos didn't say something good is going to happen to you. He didn't say you can climb every mountain. He didn't say problems are just possibilities. He didn't say just think positive. He didn't say follow every rainbow until you find your dreams. No, Amos delivered the word of God and told the people that they needed to get right with the Lord. Now, I want you to understand today that the Bible is full of good news. But how can you appreciate the good news if you don't hear the bad? The doctor comes in and tells you that your sugar's out of whack, that you're a diabetic. That's bad news. But then he tells you to take this medicine, and you'll be just fine. That's the good news. Well, I'm telling you today that there is a hell, and if you die without Jesus Christ, you'll go there. That's the bad news. 
But you don't have to go to hell. You can go to heaven through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good news. Amos was a stubborn sermonizer. He was a hard-headed preacher. Amos only cared about pleasing God. He didn't care about pleasing people. Look at what the people told him. It's there in Amos chapter 7, verse 12. There the Bible says, Also Amaziah said unto Amos, O thou seer, go, flee thee into the land of Judah, and there eat bread, and prophesy there. But prophesy not again any more at Bethel, for it is the king's chapel, and it's the king's court. Now that big shot preacher up in Israel said to Amos, go home. We don't want to hear what you've got to say. Go back to Judah and preach all that mess to them. I can just imagine Amos standing there. Now, (laughs) have you ever worked around cattle or sheep? There is a certain aroma, a certain smell that comes from the feedlot. Here was Amos. He probably smelt bad. He dressed poorly. His fingers were dirty and stained from pinching fruit all day long. Amos stood there and said, I don't care what you say. I'm not going to go home until God tells me to go home. I didn't come up here to preach a message to make you feel good. I came up here to bring you a word from God. But the people didn't want to hear that word. They didn't appreciate the word. They wouldn't listen to the word when it was spoken to them, so they told Amos to go home. So God says, okay, since you won't listen, I'm going to send a famine. Now, what I'm saying here isn't popular, but God didn't call me to be popular. God called me to tell you the truth. So, listen to me. There are a lot of false teachers out there today who have thrown out the Word of God and replaced it with a bunch of nonsense. The Bible says that in the last days, the people will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. That means they will surround themselves with teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. You know, it's not my responsibility to tell people what they want to hear. It is my responsibility as a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ to preach the truth of the Word of God and let the chips fall where they may. You know, Jesus said, I am not a way. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. And that's not popular today. But that's the gospel truth. Well, that brings me to my last point. I want you to notice that the people were a staggering society. Amos preached to a staggering society. That's found in Amos chapter 8 and verse 12. There the Bible says that God will send a famine. And the Bible says, They shall wander from sea to sea and from north even to the east, and they shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. The word wander means to stagger like a drunk with no direction in your life. They were literally a staggering society. You know, people are fickle. When they have the word, they don't want it. When they don't have the word, then they want it. This is a message for all of us today. If you don't appreciate the word of God, If you don't accept the Word of God, you may find yourself without it one day, and you'll certainly wish you had it. What we need in our world today is a word from God. What does God say when kids are being murdered in schools? What does God say when women are being raped and murdered in the streets? 
What does God say when babies are being murdered and we call it a choice? What does God say when husbands and wives run around and cheat on each other? What does God say about parents who beat and molest their own children? What does God say about some transgendered pervert who wants to use the same public restroom that our little children use? What does God say about so-called same-sex marriages? What does God say about all the nasty sin that is going on in the world right now? What we need is a word from God. How can we break the famine? Well, we can start listening. We need to own up to the fact that we need to get right with God. We need to get real and get right with the Lord. And we need to do it before He goes silent. One of my favorite movies is a film called The Blind Side. Sandra Bullock won the 2010 Best Actress Academy Award for her portrayal of Lee Ann Tui in that movie. The film tells the story of a Christian family who took in a homeless young man and gave him the chance to reach his God-given potential. Michael Orr not only overcame the hopelessness of his dysfunctional inner-city upbringing, but he became a first-round NFL draft pick for the Baltimore Ravens in 2009. At a recent fundraiser, Sean Tui noted that the transformation of his family and Michael all started with two words. When they spotted Michael walking along the road in the coldness of a November night wearing shorts and a t-shirt, Leanne Tui uttered two words that changed their world. She told her husband, Sean, turn around. Turn around. They turned the car around, put Michael in their warm vehicle, and they ultimately adopted him into their family. Those same two words can change anyone's life. When we turn around, we change direction, and we can begin an exciting new journey. Maybe some of you today need to turn around and believe in Jesus Christ. Maybe someone listening to me now needs to turn around and rededicate your life to the Lord. Whatever your situation, a great story of wonderful change could be just two words away. Turn around. It's time to get honest. It's time to turn around before God sends a famine. Do it before God quits speaking to your heart. Do it before all you hear is the silence of God. Pastor Larry Spargimino is here to answer your Bible questions. Email your questions to askpastorlarry at swrc.com. Today, Pastor Larry tackles two questions. What about the use of numbers in the book of Revelation? And will the Antichrist be Jewish or Gentile? In Revelation 20, verse 2, we read, And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. Revelation uses apocalyptic language. So why should we think that the numbers used in the book of Revelation are literal, such as the thousand years of Revelation 20? Amillennialists are prone to take numbers symbolically. For example, they do not believe that the reference to the thousand years of Satan's binding is a literal 1,000-year period. 
Amillennialists argue that 10 signifies completeness, and since a thousand is 10 to the third power, the thousand years of Revelation 20 expresses a very long period of indeterminate length and not an exact period of time. But we need to remember that the most basic function of numbers is to designate a definite quantity of something. When we read of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, we have no reason to doubt that these are seven literal churches and seven different cities named in the text. When we read of the 144,000 selected from groups of 12,000 from 12 specifically named tribes, we are not to think that these are anything other than literal numbers. Premillennialism does not stand or fall with the duration of the thousand years. There are many other considerations from the Bible that show that Revelation 20 is not speaking of the church age. It's not simply the length of the period that is significant, but the nature of that period. Satan is bound and no longer deceiving the nations. There are many scriptural passages that teach a coming literal kingdom on earth that fits the description of Revelation 20. For example, at Isaiah 2, 2 through 4, Ezekiel 37, 21 through 28, Zechariah 9, 10, and Zechariah 14, verse 9. This is not the church age described in the Bible. No doubt numbers can be used symbolically to convey a meaning other than specific quantity. The 666 designation of the beast is an example in Revelation 13:18, as is true of the seven spirits of God, Revelation 4:5, and the phrase, the seven heads are seven mountains in Revelation 17:9. But there is absolutely nothing in Revelation 20 that indicates that the thousand-year period is any other than a literal 1,000-year period. The burden of proof rests on those who claim that the thousand years are not literal. Our millennialists have no proof from Revelation 20 that the thousand years are not literal. They make the thousand years figurative because they equate Revelation 20 with the church age, which they know is far longer than a thousand years. Hence, because of their preconceived notions, they are forced to argue that the thousand years are not to be taken literally. But what they really mean is that the thousand years cannot be taken literally because a literal thousand years does not fit into their system. Will the Antichrist be Jewish or will he be Gentile? There have been different answers given to this question. In early Christian history, it was commonly believed that the Antichrist would be Jewish. Both Irenaeus and Hippolytus, Christian authors from the second century AD, argued that the Antichrist would be Jewish. This view of a Jewish Antichrist continued into medieval times. However, during the later medieval period, there was a shift from belief in a personal antichrist to a corporate one, which would mean that the antichrist would be neither Jew nor Gentile, but some corporate group or organization. Most of the Protestant reformers held to the view that the papacy, or perhaps a particular pope, representing the Roman Catholic Church was the antichrist. However, in the last century, with the rise of interest in Bible prophecy, the restoration of Israel, and the rejection of an allegorical interpretation of prophecy, there has been a return to the view that the Antichrist is an individual. Many of those who argue that the Antichrist will be Jewish point out that the Antichrist is a false messiah who will be accepted by the Jews in the future. Hence they reason since the Jews would not accept a Gentile messiah, the Antichrist must be Jewish. They argue that no religious Jew would ever think of accepting a Gentile as the messiah of Israel. Those who accept the concept of a Jewish antichrist believe that he will come from the tribe of Dan. 
Reinforcing this is the argument that the tribe from which the Antichrist would come would not be listed among the 144,000 of Revelation chapter 7 verses 4 through 8. And of course, we notice that the tribe of Dan is not listed in this passage. The idea of a Jewish Antichrist would appeal to those who are anti-Semitic. There are those who argue that the Jewish people are the source of the world's problems. They argue that since the Jewish people have caused so many problems in the world, the biggest troublemaker of all must be Jewish. In Daniel 11.37 we read, Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. Does this suggest that the Antichrist is a Jew? On the surface, yes. However, the word translated God is Elohim, a plural noun, and the Hebrew word for God found in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Because it is plural, it can be translated gods. In that case, Daniel 11.37 would read, Neither shall he regard the gods of his fathers, which would suggest a Gentile who worshipped many gods and was a polytheist, not a Jew. I don't believe the Jews would accept a Gentile Messiah, but there is a common fallacy here. Those who argue that the Antichrist must be a Jew have to show that the Jews accept the Antichrist as their Messiah. But there is nothing in the Bible that says that the Jews accept the Antichrist as their Messiah. Just because the Jews make a covenant with the Antichrist, as we're told in Isaiah 28.15 and Daniel 9.26, does not mean that they accept him as their Messiah. Biblical typology certainly suggests he is a Gentile. Most commentators would agree that Daniel 11 is speaking about Antiochus Epiphanes, who is a type of the future Antichrist. Since Antiochus was a Gentile, this strongly suggests that the Antichrist is a Gentile. Furthermore, prophetic scripture speaks about Antichrist as rising out of the sea. We find that in Revelation 13.1 and Revelation 17.15. In biblical prophecy, the sea is an image of the Gentile nations of the world. So once again, the evidence supports a Gentile antichrist. In addition, the Bible speaks of the times of the Gentiles, Luke 21, 24. The period known as the times of the Gentiles does not end until the second coming. The antichrist is the final ruler of the Gentiles. He is the leader of a Gentile world power arrayed against Jesus Christ. So how can a Jew be the last ruler of a time when the Gentiles will have prominence? I think the most convincing proof that the Antichrist is a Gentile is the fact that the Bible tells us that the Antichrist will be of Roman descent. In Daniel 9.27, the one making the covenant with Israel is said to represent the revived Roman Empire. In Along the Road, John Beck delves into the conversations that would naturally occur if you had walked with Jesus along a first century road. Journey with Beck as he weaves the Old Testament context of each locale into Jesus' experience there and discover how these easily overlooked geographical and cultural details can enhance our understanding of God's Word. Along the Road book and DVD are available for a gift of $30 or more. Call 1-800-652-1144 and order yours today. 1-800-652-1144.
Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.